Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud of Turin over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Teddy Pappas. She's a researcher concerning many aspects of the Shroud. And we'll be talking today mostly about the image and the formation of the image and then the blood on the shroud. Teddy uh, is known by many as a criminal defense attorney who has been practicing law since 1994, most of that time being a solo practitioner. Her practice has extended to the general sessions courts, as well as trial courts and appellate courts. However, since, 2000, since December of 2019, she has been a regular guest on various podcasts, including The Real Seekers Ministries, Skeptics and Seekers, and Proselytize or Apostatize, where she has spoken about the Shroud of Turin and has also been involved in debates regarding its authenticity. She has also spoken on these podcasts on a range of other topics, which often merge the incendiary topics of religion and politics, and which are often in an informal debate format with skeptics and or atheists. Teddy, welcome. Great to have you. you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Teddy, tell us uh, your backstory on how you got involved with the Shroud of Turin. Well, I was about 15 years old and I, uh, it was around Easter time and I saw on television where there was just a quick uh, thing in the news about the Shroud of Turin and, and it piqued my curiosity. And then I think it was the next day I was with my mother at the grocery store and saw a magazine. It was probably Time Life or something like that. And I saw the image of the holy face on it and you know, the Shroud of Turin. And I was like, oh, there it is. And so I was just looking at it and fascinated by it. And I asked my mom if she would take me to a bookstore so I could get a book on it. And she was happy to, uh, to oblige. And uh, so I read a book. It was um, the book by uh, Dr. Kenneth Stevenson, a Sturt member, and Dr. Gary Habermas. And, uh, and I've, I've been hooked ever since. It, it's uh, endlessly fascinating and the, the information uh, to know about it, it just, it never ends, um, but it's a wonderful journey. Yeah, absolutely. And you are so right. There is, uh, it, it is a journey. I, I don't think anybody can know everything there is to know about all of the little facets of uh, information that's out there and, uh, and, and then to be able to add to that. And so, uh, but I'm curious, so how did you go from now uh, being a lawyer to where you're now spending also a lot of your time studying the Shroud? Well, just, um, you know, every, every bit of time I've got and uh, with, with my son, I've got a son and uh, helping him with certain, certain things. And so I'm not practicing full time right now. So I, I still, you know, I'm, I'm a solo practitioner. So I practice, uh, I still keep my toe in the water, but uh, so it gives me a little bit more time along with doing things to help my, my son. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's great. So we wanted to talk today about uh, the image on the shroud. And then obviously, there's all kinds of directions we can take. So uh, I guess, first of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about how the image was formed and or let's talk about what it is not. 
-hmm. And that will definitely help us to understand more about that. Well, one of the things that uh, I think that the, the biggest argument to beat is, you know, the claim that it's a painting. I think it's very easy to, um, to disprove, for example, that it's an image that was created by placing a linen cloth on a, a, a hot statue. Um, because we know that scorch marks will fluoresce in ultraviolet light. And we also know that to put a cloth over a, a statue, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to get the sides of the statue if you just lay a cloth on top of it. Uh, and so then that will bring about a distorted image on the cloth. So, you know, some people say, oh, heat up a statue, put some iron, you know, uh, or if you don't heat up the statue, put some uh, red ochre uh, pigment made of iron oxide on it and press a, a cloth down. Well, you've also got to figure out the logistics of the situation. You've got a cloth that's roughly 14 and a half by three and a half feet. That is not an easy thing to handle. It's huge. And so to manipulate um, such a large cloth to get it over a statue, well, some people try to get around the argument about the distortion on the sides. Some people will argue that perhaps it was laid flat. Well, okay, if you've got powder on that, you're, you're still, how are you going to with a whole frontal and dorsal life-size image, get all of that, not only to where you're not getting any of the sides, but how are you going to get the superficiality that is required that we see on the shroud, whereas we see that on the body image, the, the color that creates that straw yellow color, that image, is only goes like when you have a, a piece of thread, a linen thread on the shroud, each thread is composed of well over a hundred microfibers. Some people say 150, 200, but let's just be conservative and say a hundred plus. And, and, and we can think of a rope, how a rope is one piece of rope, that's like the thread, but in the in the rope, you have smaller pieces that are twisted. So that's a similar way to think of the threads on, on the shroud. And so with these microfibers, you've got approximately you know, over 100 microfibers and the image, this straw yellow color only goes down to the top one to three microfibers. So how would one, with a whole statue, whether heated or, um, or with, with any type of paint on it, how are you going to control the superficiality on a cloth so big and the uniformity of the color? When the Sturp team examined, uh, you know, some people will say, oh, it's totally uniform. It's not. 100% uniform in color, but the variation 
I don't remember what, what it is off the top of my head, but it is so small that it, it's like, if you probably put it into a percentage, it's probably, you know, let's say 98, 99% uniform in terms of the color. How are you going to achieve such a color? So, you know, some of those um, aspects, you know, because one of the things that I find interesting when people discuss the shroud, they will try to lampoon various arguments like, oh, well, here's a potential thing, you know, why perhaps this argument isn't 100% or 99% solid, like, oh, here's a little critique of it. But when you have a mountain of evidence created with evidence that's, you know, 90% plus certain, and you've got a bunch of it, well, then you have to just get into what is reasonable and rational in terms of what we choose to believe in. Because in life, there's nothing that we really require 100% certainty. We'd be locked up in our, in our homes. And even then we might think, oh, well, maybe I'm going to get carbon monoxide poisoning. Am I sure that I'm safe, you know, being in my home? I mean, nobody can survive with that kind of mindset. And so we constantly have to assume certain risks that whatever information that we have coming to us is not perfect, but we have to see what is reliable. And when we look at the issue of the shroud, uh, you know, obviously it's a big issue in terms of Christianity and, you know, with Christianity, there's the issue of hell. Uh, no, no. What is hell? Is it, you know, a lake of fire? Is that uh, just a lot of very colorful and dramatic imagery? Nobody can, can be totally certain of that. And so, you know, who wants to hedge their bets? Right. Well, like I like your, your point about the superficiality and that right there, you know, when you're talking about those microfibers or fibrils and that it only goes through, you know, one or two layers out of a hundred or 200 in each of the threads, um, that definitely rules out things like uh, dyes and stains, um, even to your point about scorching. And, and then to your point as, as well about red ochre and iron oxide, if it were done by iron oxide, then there would be, uh, you know, re residues of iron oxide on the, uh, on the shroud. And uh, so each one of those arguments can also be kind of uh, negated by, the, by what has actually been observed on the shroud. One of the interesting things is with the microscopist uh, that was supposed to be world renowned, um, Walter McCrone, um, you know, he was saying that, you know, for sure it is red iron oxide or, or red ochre, which is iron oxide. But you know, iron oxide, uh, depending on its degree of hydration. Uh, and so when we have the red, it, well, with the pigments made from iron oxide, depending on their degree of hydration, that can affect the color. So if it's very mm. um, dehydrated, 
it becomes red. If it's very hydrated, it becomes yellow. But the interesting thing is the, the straw yellow color of the body image on the shroud does not match the color of red ochre, hmm. not at all. Um, and so that's a huge blunder that Walter McCrone made. And even in his book, when you see where he uh, tried to replicate what he thought would be the quantity of red ochre to a gelatin uh, paint binder or medium, you can see in the pictures of his book, it's reddish in color, but the body image is straw yellow. Now here's where it gets really fascinating. Um, the, 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 that straw yellow color is the color of yellow ochre pigment, mm. which is the very hydrated form. Mm. But let's just argue uh, you know, devil's advocate. Um, let's be devil's advocate and say that the shroud was originally painted in straw yellow. The fact that it was, when you know, we see from the burn marks and we also have a, an excellent provenance for the, the shroud uh, extending to the 1532 fire. We know it was in a fire. We know that the burn marks on the shroud are from the fire, but we do not see any alteration in the in the pigment. If you know, if there were if the body image were formed of pigment, um, and especially if it was formed of yellow ochre, that yellow ochre heated up would turn into red ochre. So. But the fact is, is red ochre is not the color that we see on the shroud. We <laughs> see yellow ochre. So that yellow color could not have gone through the, the fire and not shown signs of at least a heat gradient as Ray Rogers, who was a, a pyrolysis expert, um, you know, and a chemist uh, working at Los Alamos National Laboratory. So this was his... This is his area of expertise in terms of ex explosions and heat and, and how heat would affect um, paint, pigment, stains, and dyes. It would have affected all of that. Yet we see the body image, um, it, it hasn't been affected. And, and the other thing where Walter McCrone was claiming um, quite loudly, that, um, that the shroud was formed from a very dilute form of watercolor. Now he gives this argument that it's so dilute, it's practically water. Well, if it's that dilute, how do you see all of these particles that give us the image? It, it, it doesn't square, the information does not square. And if it were watercolor paint, he has to account for how is it that we know that they had to douse the fire. Uh, you know, the shroud was in its reliquary in, in the uh, 1532 fire. Uh, some, some of the silver that was part of the reliquary melted from the heat and created openings. So when they were dousing um, the reliquary with the water, 
some water got into the shroud. And so we have these water stains and we see water stains also on the body image. But what's fascinating is you can see the calcium rings that distort the body image, but underneath the calcium rings, we see the image undistorted. If it were a watercolor, that image would be distorted, especially given the intense, the pressure of the, um, of the water. And, um, and another interesting thing is, is that with the, the water, it would have been hot because at the moment of contact with the fire, that water's just gotten heated up. Well, that, that's something that I just um, was exploring last night as I was combing through Walter McCrone's book. Um, he did a test regarding gelatin, um, the gelatin medium, the binder, and he, uh, he got some linen and he painted a cross on it with, with this gelatin binder. And he noticed, uh, because Eric Jumper had told him that the gelatin binder would have a preservative effect on uh, on the shroud, on the shroud fibers. And when he painted the, the gelatin, uh, he, he did a cross and he heated it up in, a, um, in an oven that was about 400 and something degrees Fahrenheit in order to simulate aging, which I personally think that's a very, I mean, that's a nonsense, I, I think it's, it doesn't make sense because the aging process would never bring about in a typical situation that much heat all at once for 10 minutes. So I'm wondering, could that have started a Maillard reaction? I, I don't know. I, like I said, this right. was just late last night. I'm, I'm thinking of these things, but, but, the, um, the, but when he then got, a, he started thinking that with this cross that he painted, that he noticed, that, okay, so, so the rest of the linen darkened, but the cross remained white and preserved. So it was like the gelatin binder was, was creating that preservative or protecting mm. effect, like what Eric Jumper said. But he noticed that the borders of the cross were darkened, and he thought that that may have been drawing in impurities from the cloth. Hmm. Now, what's so fascinating about this is he then does a second experiment and he uses hot water extraction to remove the impurities from the cloth. No problem with that that immediately came to my mind is, well, wait a minute, natural linen is going to have impurities from the redding process. It's gonna have iron, calcium, and strontium. So that's not a fair analysis because he's presuming now that he's going to do the second experiment that, that the linen on the shroud was ever pure. Well, that's nonsense. It was water redded. Who knows what kind of other mm. impurities there might be in addition to iron, calcium, and strontium. So, um, so, he, so he was talking about how he used this hot water extraction technique and then that made me think 
of the fire. And I was like, well, if that were the case, that water coming on and so hot, that should have removed impurities mm. from, from the areas where there are calcium stains. But they've seen through x-ray fluorescence and through other ways that there is a uniform layer of iron, calcium, and strontium throughout the expanse of the, of the shroud. So that's just not making sense. And, and what's interesting too is- Well, and too, if I can interrupt you there, uh -huh. uh, if, it, if it even were uh, that, uh, how did the either 13th or 15th century, whatever century you believe it was painted, or the impressed the image was impressed mm -hmm. upon the cloth how did those people know that that's uh that that was going to work and 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 be able to make an image like like what is found on exactly the and the interesting thing is too with 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 the first experiment that he did where uh he painted that cross on just regular linen um which i've read that even regular linen uh, they've been water reading. I mean, they, they, I think, I don't know that they do it right now, like totally modern, but still up until relatively modern times, linen was being water redded. And I've read that a lot of times even modern linen can still have iron in it and probably the strontium mm. and calcium. So tell us what uh, you mean by water redding. Oh, uh, so water redding is the process um, in turning the flax plant, which is what's used to make linen, uh, into to get the fibers, what they do is they they gather up flax plants at a certain point of their growth cycle. They then put it in a natural body of water, like a river or a lake, and or stream, and they let it sit usually I think seven to 10 days and the bacteria in the water causes the pectins which are like the glue that is in the um the flax plant it loosens up because the flax has all of these fibers that are surrounded by a central core okay mm. with the stem which is hollow and the the fibers are surrounded surrounding that core and as that glue degrades um, from rotting off in the water then it releases the fibers so then they gather the fibers and they pick them and then they spin them and then we we get linen okay all right yeah thank you so uh uh so we have the superficiality mm -hmm. we have uh the potential uh, that the image did not get distorted with water stains. Uh -huh. And you can see the water stains on there. You have the potential that the image would have changed color where it got hot from the, uh, the Chambury fire in the, in the 1500s. Uh -huh. And it didn't change color there. And that um, would have affected pigment, paints, paint, stain, or right. dye. Right. Well, and the dye and the stains and the, and the paints would have also um, gone past the superficiality. So even though, you know, Macron is doing a handful of experiments and trying to go down one theory, uh, it's kind of then negated by the fact of the superficiality and the superficiality, and then even some of the other arguments that you made up really kind of, uh, you know, determine that none of those things could work or that it, at, and at worst, how could then a, an artist of the 13th or 15th century 
be able to know that to be able to build this superficial image. Mm -hmm. So with that, then, uh, so tell us then what is, what are some of the latest theories on how that image was actually made? Well, the, the latest one uh, that I am aware of is by Professor Giulio Fonti. And um, he is examining, he's working on a book with Bob Seifer uh, concerning the holy fire and whether uh, a very low temperature fire could possibly have been the cause of an image. Because sometimes we think of high heat in a very quick burst, but with the holy fire and um, and I, a lot of people might not be familiar with it. I'm uh, Greek Orthodox and that's a big thing in the, the Greek Orthodox church. Although I was aware of it until Julio mentioned it to me. I was like, I felt bad. I was like, <laughs> the, the church isn't doing a good job teaching this, these things. Um, but, uh, but so apparently, it, uh, it's a fire and, and uh, it, it's spontaneous. It's, it is said that it spontaneously uh, comes about, uh, and I believe it's on Good Friday. Is it on Good yeah, Friday? no, it's uh, yeah. East, it's, is it Good Friday or Easter? I think it's Easter Sunday when the, uh, when the patriarchs go into the sepulcher and through their prayer, which is just fascinating, they are able to light this holy fire uh, that lasts about 20 minutes. And then that holy, holy fire Saturday? actually, pardon? Or is, it, is, or is it Holy Saturday? Or do you think it is Easter Sunday? I should know this. Yeah, I should, I should know too. But um, I, I think it's Sunday because that was uh, believed to be when, he, when uh, Jesus was resurrected. So right, it would right, be right. that day. Okay. Now, I will admit I, have, I, have, I, I don't believe it. the day actually matters. Right, because right. you know that we went from the uh, the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, and the day of the Sunday changed. So, if that were the case, then Holy, you know, then Holy Sunday, Easter Sunday, would be sometime in the middle of the week. Plus, you have time zone changes. Plus, you have right, blah blah right. blah. There's no way that the date has to uh, has to matter. It has if to be that their prayer with the uh, the uh, the Julian calendar. Because that's yeah. one, one of the reasons why the Orthodox frequently have a different Easter than everybody else is because we go by the calendar that was used during the time of Christ, which was the Julian calendar. Right. The right. And because it, it's always a requirement for Orthodox Easter that uh, Jewish Passover has occurred. And so yeah. 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 And I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, I, my problem uh, with, with the, the date, and I didn't mean to get into this, but is that there was a 10 day difference between the, the, the Sunday date on the Gregorian versus the Sunday date or day of the Julian calendar. And so that would mean then that Easter Sunday, even for the Greek Orthodox would then be like a Wednesday. And so then since that's not the case, then there's something else that's going on there. But Good in any day. case, the uh, what's interesting, though, is that uh, the patriarch, when he goes into the sepulcher, he is able to, through prayer, to uh, create this holy fire. And so then tell us how that relates then to the image on the shroud, potentially. So, so Julio, I mean, he's Julio is the expert and Julio and, and Bob. So I just I just know a little bit about it, but I, I find it to be very fascinating because they did um, because apparently for the first 20 minutes this fire 
you can, it, there's, uh, I've seen in Julio's paper, there's a picture where he's got a candle and the fire is in his face. It, and it, yet, yet he's not In his burning. beard. He's got a yeah, beard and it's yeah, in his not, beard. And he's not, he's not burning up. And, and apparently everybody, you know, well, not everybody, everybody, but a lot of people, you know, test this out and so about for the first 20 minutes, it's a cold or cool fire that doesn't cause harm and so you know he is exploring the idea as to whether that is connected to um to the image that we see whether it's that same sort of of energy So well, I, I, I kind of like that theory. I, I, and I do too. I mean, there's a couple of theories, uh, you know, that, but I, that holy fire theory, just because it is cool, because uh, if it were hot, it would have burned the cloth. And we know that the cloth is not scorched. If unless it's it cold, was just so quickly, unless it yeah, was, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, quick yeah. Sap, but um, it, uh, it's an intriguing possibility that you know I'm I'm looking forward to to reading his book when it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, all right, so then, um, uh, so how do you think we should kind of assess the shroud? You know, is uh, is there you know is there reason or rationality? How do you think we should really you know think about the shroud? Well, I think that. Um, for me, honestly, it the the very from the beginning with uh, you know, and it started with the lawyer uh, <laughs> Secundo Pia in his photograph. You know, a lawyer and, and people always talk about um, experts shouldn't go beyond their area of expertise. But you know what? It's a good thing that Secundo Pia you know, uh, amateur photographer, uh, went outside of his area of expertise and, uh, and got permission to be the first to photograph the shroud. And the fact that we've got this gigantic cloth that has this image that is so pale that, you know, you have to be what, six to eight feet away before you can even see it. And then when he saw that negative image with all of its detail, that that is just, um, honestly, that alone is very compelling evidence in my book because how else, how many other cloths have we seen? You know, people say, oh, well, maybe it was just a natural process. Well, you know what? Lots of Jewish and Muslim people get buried in shrouds. Where's another shroud like this? We don't have it. So we have to recognize that this is a very unique cloth that some people say they can re- reproduce aspects of it. I'm not even convinced that I've seen evidence of that, but even if they say they've reproduced some aspects, you have to take the shroud as a whole with all of its very unique features because it's not just one thing. And that's, that's where we go back to what I was saying earlier. You can lampoon 
just about any piece of evidence. The only thing that we have 100% certainty of is our own consciousness. As Rene Descartes said, I think therefore I am. Everything else we do not have 100% proof. And so I like to, um, in the area of, of criminal defense work and trials, we, uh, we look at different standards of proof. And one is, uh, you know, the, the gold standard is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, some people might say that's 97%, 98, you know, somewhere in that area. It's got to be proof that is so firm that it, as, as the case law says, it permits the mind to rest and be at ease with, um, with the decision that you are confident that you're making the right choice about your decision. If there is that lack of ease in the mind, then there is reasonable doubt. But the key is reasonable. So people say, well, but you know, but this could happen and this can happen. It's not about anything, you know, could, could the moon be made of green cheese? Well, you know, maybe, maybe some, you know, but people could say, well, we've examined it and no, it's not. But, you know, hey, has someone taken an electron microprobe and, and, and gone real deep into the moon? And maybe you'd find a little bit of green cheese. You know, things can get absurd. And that is not how rational people think, especially when there is the issue of hell. Because sometimes people like to just consider this to be, oh, well, I don't think it's authentic and no big deal. And especially if somebody is not a Christian, it is a big deal. Because if the evidence is pointing to this cloth not being replicatable or reproducible, and and if we can show that this cloth, that all of the evidence, and again, nothing's 100%, but if all of the reasonable and rational evidence is that this cloth has not been made by human hands, then what does that mean? That means it is of supernatural origin. And if it is of supernatural origin, then boom, we've just created, or, or not created, but we have just shown evidence through science that the supernatural exists. Because a lot of these scientists say, science can never prove God. Oh, really? I'm not so sure about that. Because I think that the scientific evidence that supports the child's authenticity is scientific evidence of God? Is it mm. scientific evidence that's 100%? Of course not. But you know what? No scientific evidence, none is even close to 100%. How many times do we hear of these scientific trials that are had? You know, they might, a big one might have 2,000 people in it. Well, as a lawyer, I can, I can start decimating. I can decimate science, you know, this confidence, and, and, and I value science, so I don't want to be misunderstood here, but in terms of this confidence, I think that there's something 
it's even more important than science. Science is a tool. It's an extremely important tool, but there's something that's even higher than that. And I think, you know, Socrates and Aristotle, all of my people there, <laughs> I'm Greek heritage, so I'm getting a little philosophical here, but um, there's something more important than that that can, that can transcend our discovering truth and that is when we use reason and rationality and there are certain places that science hits a roadblock but that the reason and rationality can transcend and go through mm. and take us to a higher height in terms of what we know to be true and I find that to be the case with the shroud and so uh, can can skeptics point, you know, lampoon the evidence with little bits, but when you show history and you show forensic information and scientific information and put all of that together and that no one still with our technology and our knowledge and experience over the ages that no one can reproduce a cloth that has these qualities to them, then you have, then it's, yeah. I'm sorry, it's the idiot that refuses to realize that the bulk of the evidence is that this cloth is not made by human hands. This is what we call a rebuttable presumption. There has been a tremendous amount of evidence now that has that that shows that it is not reproducible. And you've got all of these brilliant skeptics doing their best to try to replicate the shroud that they can't. And are they really idiots? No, they're really not. Because if they were honest, if this were the shroud of Julius Caesar or John the Baptist or somebody else other than Jesus Christ, they would be applying a whole different set of standards. And I bet they believe that all sorts of things like, is, is that King Tut's mummy? You know, is that really real? Is this real? They accept all sorts of things in their daily life that they have not had anywhere near the degree of scrutiny or applied the degree of scrutiny that has been applied to the shroud. And they they believe that hook, line and sinker at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, uh, you know, you you have the problem of if, if it is real, then it impacts your worldview. Absolutely. Because if your worldview is that, that there is no Jesus Christ, there is no God, and and then then I have then I can't believe any of that. But I can believe if it were Julius Caesar or if it yeah. were somebody else like John the Baptist and or whoever just, it might be. And it's not just one's worldview. It's one's own behavior. Because when it's one thing, and that was one of the amazing things, at such a tender age at 15, to not just have faith in God. I had faith. I, I never needed the shroud for my faith. I had faith. But was it 100%? Was it 99%? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that it was that. It was, it was still very high. But not, I wouldn't say 98% certain, but from the age of 15 mm -hmm. and after I've had that tremendous degree of certainty that 
God is real, that Christ is real and that Christ is the Messiah and that Christ is God. And, and the, the way that the shroud ties into that is I believe, and, and, and here's another thing in terms of thinking about the shroud. It's not just about the shroud. It is about also, we can't forget, and, and I frequently mention this, it's about the, the many falsifiable claims that Christ made prior to being crucified that we see uh, in the Bible, in the Gospels, where he said that, that they're going to kill me and that on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So we have to take this amazing, mysterious cloth and put it in the context of that falsifiable claim that Christ made. And this is the evidence. So God provides, just as Christ did, provided evidence for the doubting Thomases. He gives us the shroud of Christ as that evidence that Christ was telling the truth. This is the backup and nobody can reproduce it. And the funny thing is, which I'm grateful for, is we have all of these brilliant scientists and engineers who are constantly trying to replicate the shroud, especially the image. And they think they're getting close. And it's like, you know, sorry to tell you, you know, but please keep on doing that because every time they do their experiments and they fail, they are showing that the best minds are, are trying their hardest to reproduce it and they can't do it. And, and the great thing about it is, is that just keeps accumulating in terms of the evidence pointing that this is of supernatural origin and it won't be replicated because a miracle is about awe, inspiring awe right. in the people that behold it. So if you can replicate a miracle, a miracle through natural means in the natural world, that's not a miracle. So hmm. the fact God gives us enough information about the shroud so that we can understand aspects of it. But the deeper that I study it, it's like you go researching one issue, five new ones pop up. There's never going to be enough understanding. But that's because just as C.S. Lewis said, um, God, you know, he is not going to push himself on us. Um, he cannot rate, he can only, or he cannot ravish, he can only woo. So he's mm. going to entice us to him with the shroud. And for those people with enough evidence that's good enough for reasonable people, those people are going to start drawing near to Christ if, if they haven't already. But for the people who just want to resist God, that's what free will is all about. He's going to say, well, if you just don't want to be with me. Well, there are so, uh, fair enough, uh, but there are certainly uh, people that believe in Christ, but believe the shroud is also false. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there is kind of that dichotomy. And as a matter of fact, a friend of mine, uh, you know, is like that. She says, well, I just, you know, there's been so much 
purported evidence that says that it's false yet you know definitely a you know a believer in christ and and in all of that and i hadn't having faith and what have you uh, so that there are a lot of uh, little things like that as well. And I think the other one that, uh, you know, in terms of being able to prove scientifically the question, you know, in 100% uh, or even 99.99, something that gets you close there uh, is how do you prove that love exists? You know, how, do you, how does a scientist improve, prove right. that, that, that there is love? What, how, do you, how do you prove that? It, there is more than, than science and more than the material world and these people who, who think that everything is material. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it, there's the brain and then there's the mind. Yep. yep. And that's yep. what you're saying with love. Love is in the mind. It is not uh, in the brain. And so uh, there is something beyond the, the material world. And one thing I, I wanted to just get back to what you were saying about people who um, are Christian, who, because uh, some of the worst enemies of the shroud have been Christians. <laughs> They've been, yes. and you know what it is. I figured it out. It's the whole thing with doubting Thomas. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to be a doubting Thomas because because I think they're they're honing in on the you know blessed are those who believe you know without being required to to show the proof and so everybody wants to be you know the good little the good little Christian who doesn't require any proof and it's like no 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 I don't want to see that but this is a gift from God and all of the evidence points that it's from God and it's got his face on it. And there is something amazing with, with my intensified shroud studies. I, I'm seeing the image from the shroud on a daily basis. And when I look into the face and I also love the, um, the, the oil painting that was done by, is it Ariel? Agamemnon, something like that, where he takes the the proportions from the shroud face, but fills it out so that you could see. Oh yeah, probably a very good indication of what Christ really looked right. like. Right. I look at that image, and and you know, some people might say, "Oh, are you worshiping an image? Are you worshiping a false god?" Well, first of all, it's not a false god; it is God. But no, I'm not worshiping an image on, on a piece of paper. It's the same as if you have a photograph of a loved one and you gaze at that photograph and your heart swells with love and joy and looking at the image and it draws you closer, especially if you can't see them. So if, if you have a loved one at war and you, you don't have access to them, but you can see their image and it yep. warms the heart. And that's what, that's why God gave it to us. So I, don't, I believe that he gave us the shroud, not just to, to hopefully pull in the non-believers, but also as um, a comfort to those who recognize what it is. And also just in times of, of emotional crisis, let's say if someone is facing um death or the threat of death to have 
certainty beyond a reasonable doubt, not 100%, but if you're in such a time of crisis and you can think, well, just think about, you know, you might wonder, well, I wonder if God really does exist. Is heaven real? And you're in a time of crisis. And you can just think, think about all of the scientific evidence that exists for the authenticity of the shroud and how it is evidence of the supernatural and whose face is on there. We look at the details, who else in history was crucified with a crown of thorns that is, and again, you know, back to the painting issue, if a painter was to paint the shroud from an artistic point of view, he would go with what everybody else was doing, which was that thin circlet. But the evidence points to um, bloodstains higher up on the skull that are indicative of there being a cap of thorns. Mm. So why would have a painter wanted to, to stray from what the public would expect and with where the, um, the wounds are, they're not in the palms as we would traditionally expect. We, no, we only see the exit wound, but we're seeing it in the wrist area. So are we to think, is it rational? Is it reasonable to think that this brilliant painter, you know, potentially would have done such a magnificent job, would have gotten all of these details correct, much, well, and then there's the bloodstains, uh, but, missed out on what every, you know, just about every painting. I don't think there's a painting, if there is, it's awfully rare that depicts the wounds in the wrist as, you know, in that Z area. Yeah, I think you're right. No, we know that part of the palm um, can support the weight. Now, if it's in the middle of the palm, it'll just tear through. But the, but there is the Z area that Dr. Zugabi talked about that can support it. Mm. But the thing is, is that we're seeing the, the exit wound. So a painter would have put the exit wound in the place where the public would have expected it. Otherwise, people are going to think, well, why, why'd you paint it that way? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, to your point, too, about the, uh, the entirety of the evidence, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could pick out, you know, one or two little things here and say, I don't think that that one's right or that one's right or you, you know, and I don't even want to get into the carbon-14 dating, but when you look at the entirety of the evidence and the, in, in the way the image was made and it being, you know, not the work of human hands, uh, and you, you have then, or at least we haven't figured out how it could be the work of human hands. And then everything else in terms of, you know, what a, uh, you know, a 13th or a 15th century artist might have known about the crucifixion and what he would have read and what he would have understood. And then now with all of the, the recent, you know, not recent, but, you know, all of the evidence that's been now investigated to be able to say that, uh, yes, it could actually be the wrist, and it has to be the wrist for the following reasons. And oh, by the way, the word that's used for the hand in Jew in in uh, Hebrew includes the wrist. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all kind of you know little things like that that uh, that a potentially a 13th or 15th century artist might not have known. Um, before we close, is there anything else that you'd uh, like to get across? And uh, just that um, you know, you have to look at 
how it could have been possible to have created such a uniform. The biggest, you know, enemy of the shroud, Walter McCrone, he concedes that the, the yellow body image is very uniform. And he, he tries to say that this is because of the, the paint medium, the binder, but that's a liquid. We don't see any capillarity in the threads mm. in the body image, much less at the edges. And how are you gonna get it so uniform on this 14 foot expanse <laughs> of cloth? That's just, it, it's absurd. And um, <laughs> you know, there, yeah. there will always be uh, what, what they refer to you know, in logic is invincible ignorance where you can present a mountain of evidence and people will just double down. And that is because, and it's not because they are in fact ignorant, it's because they don't want it to be true, but they may not be ignorant, but that is irrational. So Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that irrationality is, uh, you know, it's funny how it's on one side uh, I guess it's on both sides, but it's it just interesting how the irrationality is uh, is so prevalent when you start to present, you know, various pieces of evidence that will negate a lot of that that mm -hmm. what they believe is their own rational thinking. Yeah. Well, with that, Teddy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, you. Uh, uh, being on the uh, podcast and 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 blog today. This was fantastic. Um, you brought up a whole lot of different issues, which are new and certainly, hopefully, for the audience, informative. And I'm certain that it is. And uh, otherwise, uh, for the audience, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Teddy, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real treat. Bye.